Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And off air, PJ and I were both talking about exciting developments in our lives both of which we probably can't discuss on air yeah. for uh, various legal reasons. Yes, but folks, get excited, and then nothing may come of any of it, and you'll never know what it was. Yes, and uh, because we have full deniability, if nothing comes of it, we'll just never reference this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's if we it's if we stop doing the podcast because we're too successful. That's when you know things have gone well. Yeah, if... If um if you notice like a discernible improvement in audio quality, probably around kind of episode two hundred, um, <laughs> that'll be because of all the massive stacks of money that we all just have in the background of our of our houses, and that it's wonderful baffling. Like it's really just going to cut out any harsh room tone. Yeah, I think if you get enough stacks of it as well, you make a really comfy chair to sit on while we record. <laughs> And then you just get the faint rustle in the background and be a pleasant noise, but it will make you listeners realise that you're lower down than us. You're worse than us because we're rich now. PJ, I'm casting my mind back to the early days of indie comics, for us at least. Did you... uh, This is a stupid question because it's probably got a simple answer, but did you ever go to Melksham Comic Con? I didn't actually, no. Ah, well, I know that... uh, Speaking of sitting on great big piles of, of not necessarily cash, but things, I remember that this great little indie, very indie, very small kind of comic convention run right in the middle of the English countryside, Melksham Comic Con, was run by a really cool person called Hayley. Uh, she was absolutely amazing. And she ran a, the, kind of like the world's tiniest comic shop in the world. Oh, wow. It was like a former... It was called the Grain Store, hmm. and th- this is a weird thing where it's like, um, you, you know, if you try to try to tell like maybe people who aren't British what it's like being a comics fan in the UK, <laughs> and you kind of you, you say to them, no, 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 we're not, we're not that far behind you. We have big convention centres, we have big guests and everything. It's just like an American Comic Con, and then. You're like, okay, well, I did go to a Comic-Con in a little rural town where the local comic shop is literally a stone tower. Because um, this building was called the Grain Store. It was it was actually at- a proper old school, like, grain store from back in the day. Yes. Oh, my it looked God. Like, it looked like a mini castle, oh, essentially. wow. What a location for a comic shop. 
It was a two-story, single room, yeah, as in one room down, one room up, a spiral staircase, uh, like a turret, but with no, lacking the rest of the castle, basically. <laughs> and it was tiny, like just as big as like, um, I don't know, someone's living room. Uh, probably smaller, actually. Circular. And I remember that Haley uh, telling us that as she uh, was running uh, like a comic shop and a bookshop, um, you get contacted by by various publishers occasionally saying like, hey, we've got a, a hot new book coming out, whatever. Something like that. You know, do you want some like sample copies, which which would happen occasionally? Mm. And she said that once uh, she got contacted by a publisher and they were like, hey, we've got this new fantasy book coming out. We'd love to send you some sample copies. And she was like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, please um, send some in the post. And then she got woken at like 5 a.m. <laughs> I think she lived nearby by like a delivery guy calling her going like, yeah, I'm outside your building. Where do you want the pallet? The, oh, shit. And she had to go there and they sent her. I don't know what the hell they were thinking as a company, but they sent her close to a thousand units of this book. And... She, like, she, didn't, she didn't know what to do with them. So she said literally they were they were making tables out of them and then throwing kind of um, uh, tablecloths over them or making chairs and stuff because they just had so many copies of this damn book. It basically filled the shop. There was nowhere else to go. Oh, my God. What Do you know what book it was? That's crazy. I have, I, I, all I can say is it's probably not one you've heard of. I, I hadn't heard of it and I've never heard of it since. So it, was quite, <laughs> it was quite obscure. So I, I don't know whether the author should have been flattered that the publisher was printing so many and giving them away or kind of insulted. I I assume then the shop started just giving them away to people as well for free rather yeah, than... Because, be- you know, we, we, we printed a thousand copies of Trolltooth Wars and that's a... So that's an indie comic, but it had obviously this established brand behind it and we still haven't sold out of those. It's difficult to shift a thousand copies of an indie book. Oh, massively, particularly in, particularly in the UK, there just isn't, you know, you're, you're just dealing with a much, much, much smaller audience. Mm. And you know, I was chatting to um, uh, a chap called Scott, who is uh, he's uh, an indie comic creator, but based in California. And of course, we're talking like geographical scale on a level that my little brain can't even process. But he was saying that like he's never had to journey out of state to go to a comic to, to travel to a comic-con but that he can probably go to a comic-con at least once a month wow just in california oh my god yeah if not more if not more frequently wow that's insane and with yeah and with that sheer bulk of venues like i think it would be kind of possible to Maybe not live like a rich life, but you could probably make a just about make a living on indie comics yeah. just through sheer volume of events. If there, if you're going to different events every month, yeah, because I think that's the problem over here as well. Is you know to a degree you're just doing the same three or four events every year, and if you don't have new product like the second or third time you go there, no one, everyone there already has it. Yeah, so well, indeed, yeah, and and. Competition is very fierce. Mm. Like, um, it's very, you know, everybody wants to be at Thought Bubble. Yeah. Which is the big arty show. And and not everybody can get into Thought Bubble. And it, it's pretty big as it is. So, you know, it's like blinking, you miss it. And you 
you know, if you if you miss your chance. And and sadly, the same goes for MCM because MCM is like the big corporate um, mirror universe version of Thought Bubble. <laughs> and uh, it, I love it and I hate it because they're an absolute nightmare to deal with. But you can't deny the fact that they get people in through the door. But, you know, last year, new management, big change up in how they kind of allocate tables and a bunch of people didn't get in because for whatever reason they weren't deemed legitimate artists in an odd way yeah yeah and it's like oh my god like that's a that's a terrifying thing like if you're if you're like an indie creator and you thrive and you're like you your your livelihood relies on getting a table what are you supposed to do if like someone just turns around and goes uh, no, we don't recognize you as an indie creator because you haven't done work for, say, Marvel. That's pretty grim. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I think indie creators—it's—it's it's really thought bubble or nothing these days, I guess. Because thought bubble, I know, is is known probably the only indie con I can think of like that that's sort of known outside of the UK. Um, mm. My friend and co-presenter on Measure of a Fan, Matt Troy. His wife, Mariel, is a Canadian comic creator. Um, she's just done TCAF out there. Ah. But she's coming over here this summer. And she's excited that she's over here because it means she can go to Thought Bubble. <laughs> Interest, interesting. It's probably the equivalent of TCAF, isn't it? Mm. Because people talk... Yeah, TCAF has a, has a big reputation globally. Yeah, it really does. And I think Thought Bubble has that too, which is unique, I think, in sort of that kind of convention over here. They grew it really well, fair play to them. Like, I haven't tried to get in this year because I don't think there's any point in me getting in until I have a book that isn't Trolltooth Wars to take with me. <laughs> and life is getting in the way there. But I am going as a punter, which will be, I'm looking forward to actually, because it's the first time I've done a Comic Con on the other side of the table for a number of years. I think it'd be nice to not have the pressure of being there to try and sell things. I'll just be able to wander around, buy some comics, catch up with some friends. Yeah, because it's always a trade-off, isn't it? Because if you go to a show and you're working, you want to see everyone. Yeah. And I apologise to anyone listening who can now hear my neighbour's dog barking. I can hear it. Hi, Pooch. Welcome to my well, <laughs> welcome to my life. That's 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 the alarm that goes off every half hour. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, you know, you say, oh, it's great, I can't wait to hang out with people. But then you've been doing like a kind of eight to ten hour day behind the table and you're knackered yeah and then you've got to do it again tomorrow or travel home so you never get quite as much time to hang out with people as you'd like yeah and i'm lucky in that when i've done thought bubble i've sort of always done it with someone else usually i've done it with gavin mitchell who we both mm. know and have worked with um, friend of the show did the did the cover artwork for uh, this podcast yes he did indeed yes was has, has drawn afterlife inc and was the artist on trolltooth wars so we both love gav a lot <laughs> Um, arguably arguably pj loves him more because he's done more work with gav yeah but you're trying to catch up i'm trying but you see he won't answer my calls it's like <laughs> it's pj or nothing that's that's all you get but yeah because i've done the show with him it's been quite good because one of us can wander off while the other one covers the table but i think mm. if, yeah if you are doing it on your own you don't get that time you can't wander the show no I, i'm i've got to say like that's uh, yeah. I, I've never had to do it on my own. I think which is, I'm very lucky in that regard because even before, like, um, we founded Big Punch Studios, I was lucky enough to have like Lucy with me, mm. you know. And yeah, God, I, I I feel for people who do have to kind of solo it because yeah, that must be a nightmare. I did. Um, 
uh, Fighting Fantasy Fest a few years ago with uh, with because yeah, Trolltooth Wars was there and that was a really successful con for us because it was the Fighting Fantasy graphic novel. But it, Gav couldn't make it, so it was only me and my wife Lisa, and she got bored very quickly and just wandered off to go and find Kew Gardens. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, PJ. I mean, because um, I've got a foot in like um, a few different worlds. Um, going to a gaming convention, mm. like UK Games Expo, uh, where Big Punch Studios sells, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing sandwich themed game. Arguably the market leader in sandwich themed card games. Um, there's a ton of like fighting fantasy stuff there. Like, if you ever considered it, I have actually. I, I would like to go. Um... I've got a couple of ideas for games I want to try and start making, to be honest. And I think I, I need, mm. again, time. But yeah, I'd love to go to the Games Expo. But I do want to just quickly touch on Sandwich Masters, though, because uh, I received my copy of Bread Rolls, the Kickstarter, recently. Loved it. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you, PJ, for your kind support. With my copy of Bread Rolls, I had the updated version of Sandwich Masters, which meant I had a spare copy of Sandwich Masters, which uh, I took with me on holiday recently with my sister, brother-in-law, and nephews. My nephews love Sandwich Masters. They wanted I'm, I'm, you to can't hear the smile, PJ, but I'm smiling. They wanted to play it over and over again. They are eight and five years old, and they just loved the idea of putting silly things in sandwiches. And so they now have my original Kickstarter copy from the first oh one. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, apparently my sister will come downstairs, and they've just got all the cards spread out on the table and just making sandwiches without even playing the game sometimes. So, <laughs> Well... PJ, you are thank thank you for corrupting the young. Uh, I, I always appreciate that, and uh, yeah, le- leaving like a kind of like a you're like, you're like seeding. You know, it's like everywhere you go, you're 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 like Johnny Appleseed. You're just chucking copies of Sandwich Maskers behind you. <laughs> I, I wish, but no, I've just the one, and I'm keeping the other one because I enjoy playing it too. No, but thank you, PJ. That's very kind of you. I, but no, and 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 what I'm saying is, if if you wanted to go to UK Games Expo, I don't think you'd need a game. I think you, well, it'd be nice to have a game, yeah. but I think you could just turn up with, with, with the old book and probably do very well for yourself. I might have a look next year. Mm, you should come along. Mm. We'll be there. We can, we can hang out. I like hanging out. I mean, I've still not seen you, PJ, in like I know <laughs> years. Yeah. Uh, it's really weird, everybody. Like, um, we've probably spoken more in recording this podcast than we've ever spoken in person. Yeah, yeah. Because that's weird, isn't what's it? What's this? This is how many episodes? This is episode 60, but that's not counting episode zero that we did. So we've got at least a good 162, no, sorry, 122 hours of us talking <laughs> recorded. So <laughs> Yeah, that's not, in, that's not counting like the half hour to 40 minutes we often spend chatting before we turn the microphones on as well. The waffle, I call it. There's a lot of waffle, to be honest, yeah. But PJ, when all our kind of secret plans come to fruition... We'll get a, like kind of neighbouring mansions. Yes. So we still won't see each other, but we can. When we send angry letters, they won't have to travel as far. And we can make sure that, like, when we're recording, our recording studios are like the the rooms adjacent to the each other's buildings with a window, <laughs> so we can at least we're recording remotely, but we can see each other through windows. Yes, you can see like a distant wave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is ultimately the goal, isn't yeah. it? It's like you know, if I I, I don't want to, you know. I enjoy you, PJ. I like recording like a podcast with you, but like clearly, just being near each other is is insufferable. It's too much. Which is why, which is why we've had to do this remotely. There's there's too much awesome to be concentrated in one space <laughs> when we get together. That's the problem. <laughs> 
Now, PJ, speaking of too much awesome... Oh my God, yes. <laughs> now, that's a segue. Um, uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to take a break from our regularly scheduled Spectre-themed JLA adventures <laughs> to dip into a random, like completely unconnected little story about some kind of World War Three. I know, what's going on there? This publishing schedule is whack. So one can only assume that this is, this is why uh, Morrison and Porter have been suspiciously absent, you know, uh, for the last few issues. Oh, they've, they've come, they've gone. But, like, we had a lot of guest stories, and I have to assume it's because they were kind of, like, gathering strength and powering up. Yes. Yeah. And as we read this issue, it makes absolutely no sense for the Spectre story to be in between the last one and this one. It feels like this is a direct follow-on almost a few minutes after the... The issue before last ended. So, yeah, DC messed up there. Yeah, there are absolutely no concessions in the story to explain that there's been a time gap or there's been any reason. It, it just it just didn't happen, basically. So it was very clearly inserted in editorial. Yes. It does not matter, however. Um, but PJ, um, it's finally time. It's, you could, you know, this is not hyperbole to say that everything... Has been leading to this moment. This is this is the the beginning of the end. This was for the series. This was very much Morrison's end game that they had in mind from the start. This was what they were building to all along, and almost everything they've done through their run on JLA was in service to getting to this point. Mm. I think mm, quite to yeah. a degree. This story touches on every other. Morrison story that we've covered, as well as a few others. Oh, uh, other Morrison stories? No, we no, other story, other JLA stories we've covered by other creators. Uh, yeah. One in particular that will come up in this issue. You know, it's, it's, I've read this story like a hundred times, if that, and I'm drawing a blank right this moment, but I'm I'm sure it will return to me once we get there. Yeah, I, but I think the only one this doesn't really touch on is Earth 1. Earth 1. Earth 2. Which one is it? Earth 2. Ah, Earth 2. There I'm we getting go. my numbers confused. Yeah. Earth 2. This doesn't really <laughs> tie in or touch on Earth 2 at all, but everything else Morrison's done, there's something in, in World War 3 that calls back to it. Ah, yes. And so, and of course, as I've said Many times, arguably, I won't shut up about this damn point. <laughs> but this was my f- my first ever JLA story. That's my first ever DC, first ever DC story, and my first ever Morrison story. That's still wild to me. I know. So, so I read the entire series in reverse. Like for me, this was like the just this this insane work of art. Probably one of my favorite books of all time, the trade paperback. And then I got to like go back and see all the breadcrumbs which had been kind of dropped along the way. <laughs> that I kind of wish I could read it for the first time that way. I think that would be really interesting to do. But obviously, you can only read something for the first time once, and and I did it in the right order. So yes, <laughs> like uh, a you, were, you you were good about it. <laughs> now, PJ, um, I was going to say maybe we should look at the cover first, uh, which is a little awkward because in this trade, all the covers of the entire World War Three run are right at the back. Yeah, yeah, this is quite an interesting cover though, because it's it's the Injustice Gang, the new Injustice Gang, Luthor, Prometheus, and Queen Bee at the front, and then you got the JLA logo in the middle, which is being smashed to pieces by the General, who's falling on it from above. <laughs> I don't. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I have to assume it's purely because drawing his body in shot would have messed up the image. Yeah. But it's very striking. I think Porter's having fun here. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I think Porter has a great time with all the covers uh, for the next few issues, I think. They're, they're all here on these couple of pages, and they all look fantastic. They're some of the best covers from the whole series, I think. Oh, next, oh, next yeah, issue's no. cover is incredibly striking, but we'll get to that next time. Oh, yeah, and definitely not phoning them in. No. You know, not not that that happens, but like sometimes you get you just get like a cover and it's like, oh, that's just a nice image of the JLA or whatever. But this has like thematic resonance. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Anyway, so yes, today we are reading World War Three Part 1, a.k.a. issue 36 of the Morrison JLA run, which came out in December... 1999. Oh, wow. The last yes. issue of the 90s. The last issue of the millennium. And and a weird a weird thought kind of occurred to me, which is, I guess, kind of obvious in hindsight, but this would have been coming out simultaneously with Morrison's Invisibles, would it not? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I find that kind of hard to, hard to kind of visualise, because the Invisibles is so... Well, I mean, it's it's so Morrison. It's so, like, flipping weird. And obviously, like, the turn of the millennium was, like, a big, big, big thing in that and, and all the kind of cosmic, magical significance that Morrison gave it. And then at the same time, they're also doing this story, which is kind of literally about the end of the world, mm. but but also kind of toned down a little bit for a superhero well, actually, no, for, for the mere mortals among us. <laughs> yeah, I think I would choose JLA over Invisibles for a reread, though. I would agree. It's just more fun. I would agree. I, I, I think um, when I started discovering Morrison, which I do blame this book for, and then I started working my way through the entire Morrison catalogue, I very much enjoyed The, Invisible, the Inv- Invisibles because I, I felt it was a very adult like kind of clever book and I, I felt very clever and and adult for reading it and there's a lot of there's a lot of really fun ideas in the in in the invisibles but it was really weird to hear morrison themselves say after the facts that like they really didn't have a plan they were kind of mm. almost making it up as they went along and then you go back to the invisibles and you go like oh yeah that's kind of obvious now i kind of assumed that there was like a greater plan it all makes sense in hindsight but it's actually like a kind of glorious mess. Yeah. It's a fun mess, but it is a mess. I think to a degree as well, it's <clears throat> when we when you're in your late teens or early twenties, there's this drive to be more grown up. So you're drawn to things you think are edgier and more grown up. And you'll still enjoy the fun things, but it's like, oh no, I, I'm I'm much more happy reading the the dark gritty edgy things and then when you hit your late 30s or early 40s like where we are now you're like no Mm. i want fun i'm done with edgy (laughs) Mm. give me my bright colorful superheroes having fun adventures please yeah no i agree i agree it's like um maybe it's a rite of passage that everyone has to go through but it's realizing that you don't and you you don't need to and you definitely shouldn't drag childhood heroes into adulthood you should just to fit your changing needs what's great about them is they're not going to change and they're going to be there for the next generation we don't have to hammer them into a new edgy shape to 
to, to just to make us feel better about ourselves. Yeah, we don't have to do that, do we, Zack Snyder? <laughs> hey, that that comment could have been directed at any any big director, PJ. Any, any big director of Justice League. So, PJ, um, where where are we in the world of JLA as we, as we enter enter this story? Well, for some reason, we've had a story about the Spectre and a whole crossover involving Hell and Hal Jordan, but that didn't really just happen. That happened before the issue before that, where there was a prison riot, Kyle lost his ring, and then it got scanned by Prometheus and Lex Luthor because the Injustice Gang are back. But also, Mageddon is coming. Yes, and we don't know what Mageddon is at all. No. Other than the new gogs apparently know about it and are concerned enough about it to have sent Barda and Orion to join the League. Uh, and now uh, Scott Free, a.k.a. Mr. Miracle, has arrived, much to the uh, annoyance of Steel, and uh, has begun the fortification of Earth because this thing called Begeddon is coming. Yep. And it it's not good. I think we've had it described already as the Primordial Annihilator. So, you know, when the Primordial Annihilator is coming for you, you know you've got problems. And speaking of people who have problems, PJ, um, we open on a splash page and of just... Well, it's, it's, it's just... I don't know, it's weird, PJ. It's hard to describe. It's like a lot of... Dead bodies floating in space, I think. Yeah, but they're all sort of very, very strange bodies. They're they're not quite normal human looking. There's like they've got pipes and sort of cybernetic bits coming off them. One of them seems to be made of crystal. Um, and th- there's a real Kirby vibe to a lot of them. There's also mm. some like spaceships floating in the background. Another debris, and all we get is a caption saying prologue, and. I've only ever read this issue before as part of the trade. So yes. to actually dive in and read it on its own as a separate issue, this opening splash page is so weird and such an intriguing it's, hook. It's incredibly weird. And I've got to say, so, so, it's a failing of mine. Whenever I've read this story, because there's no text on this page, I think my brain is just like instantly like snapped away from it. Like I've kind of gone, oh, that's cool. And then you've moved on. Mm. But it... It's it's a really just unusual way to open the story because yeah, there's no context. It's just wild. It's it's oddly unsettling when you start looking at it for a longer period of time and start really studying it. And this is why I would I would argue that pagination is very important because like I this is the thing I find odd. Like in the trade, the story starts with a page on the left hand side of the yeah, spread. Yeah, whereas normally that would not be the case and yet there's a later kind of blank page inserted so i have to assume that this would normally have been a, a page one of the issue it would have normally been like a standalone image just on the right hand side of the spread yeah you know, you presumably yeah it's i don't know i don't know what's going on in the trade collection but it's it's weird, and I think when you're viewing it in this context, it's diminished by having a page of action on the right. Yes, agreed. Whereas if it were the yeah, if it were the only image you were seeing, yeah, you'd be like, what "The hell is this? <laughs> this is, as you say, a really weird hook." Yeah, yeah, and 
it's just bizarre, but it's also somehow brilliant. I think this is, you know, we talk about how great Howard Porter's art is consistently, but it's because it is just stunning. Porter is such a good artist, and this is just another example of it. And yeah, it's amazing. An amazing artist, and I would say criminally underrated. Yes. As an artist. I, th- I think... Um, Oh, like not to not to read too much into it, but do you get what I'm saying when when I would say that like he's not considered arty? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. The only other sort of big thing I can think of that I remember being talked about with his name on it was when he did a run on the Flash, mm. uh, which I think was more fairly recent. Uh, I, I believe I'm maybe around New Fifty Two or just after. I think, but. Yeah, you don't really hear him talked about. And I think that's a shame because at the same time as this, you had Busick and Perez on Avengers. And I think Porter is a match for Perez. And Perez is rightly considered a legend of the industry. Mm. Uh, but I would say in his own way, Porter was doing just as good a job on JLA. I, I think it's quite I think it's quite unfair, actually. And I, I think particularly n- now, nowadays, when the landscape of comic art is very much considered... We talk more about it as an art when I think we're coming out of the 90s here where comics were seen as very disposable. Yeah. There's still an element of that now. But like, and maybe there's a slight snobbery when you think that like, oh, you know, he was just drawing big kind of, you know, superheroes punching each other and it's not real. I hate saying this. I don't believe it. But like, oh, it's not real art. But the complexity, like, do not, like, it's... It's like good trash. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I always maintain that like some of the highest forms of art are just entertaining trash. And like, I think this is wonderful. This is one of my favorite bodies of work in the world. But like, the world could look at it and go like, ah, yeah, but it's just people in tights kind of punching each other. I, I honestly feel like Porter is almost a natural successor to Jack Kirby. Mm. I think that we get obviously a lot of, of him drawing Kirby creations throughout JLA and especially in this story with the New Gods elements to it. But I feel like his characters have a similar weight to Kirby's. You could you can feel the weight of the characters in a Jack Kirby comic. And I think the same is true of Porter. And the the way he draws energy, he takes on the Kirby crackle and does that brilliantly. Oh God, yes. But I think also his machinery designs owe a lot to Kirby as well. And yeah, I, I think I agree. I, I think Porter should be a bigger name. I really do. And when he draws a superhero wearing like a superhero costume, I 100% believe in them. I believe in the reality of his artwork. Like, I don't need... You don't have to stick like panelling or seams on the clothing. Like, this is just comics writ large. Yes. Yes. These characters are real to me in in a way that kind of, oh, I don't know. Adding that weird kind of basket, you know, you know, like there was a period where like every superhero costume had like a kind of in movies had like a kind of basketball texture. Mm. They just made it kind of like knobbly, as if that would make it real. Yes, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I think this is. I think this is the difference between because we've talked about how great both Porter and Mark Pajarillo have been on mm. the series, and I think that's the difference between them. Porter's drawing these characters as larger than life. He's he's drawing them as comic book characters leaning into the Kirby of it. Whereas mm. I think Pajarillo draws them slightly more realistically where 
in the real world they'd be looked on as as a bit weird um and i want to say is sort of more akin to ditko oh god that's a good comparison oh my god pj that's great both geniuses in their own ways but both very different from each other and i think the same is true of porter and pajarillo and yeah i think these are two artists who you need to need to be talked about a lot more and no, PJ, God, that is, that, is, that is really insightful. Just that's came up with that, it in this moment. <laughs> that's why we get listeners. That's why you're lucky to have PJ. He's bringing this kind of thunder to the discussion. And, and I, I would just add that I, I think um, the great thing about both their art is that um, they never seem ashamed that they're drawing superheroes. No. They're never trying to turn them into something they're not. They just look, They just look great, but in different ways. Yep. Yep, 100%. Anyhow, PJ, so we've just seen this random, weird, cosmic tableau. Um, and you might be thinking, what the hell is this? Why does it have any bearing to anything we should, you know, we're reading about? When suddenly, um, Metron, Barda and Wonder Woman appear on the scene. Yeah, they, they just teleport in using Metron's Mobius chair. And uh, they're instantly shocked by what they see, all these bodies, all this devastation. And Wonder Woman asks where they are. And Metron announces that they have arrived at Wonderworld. The limits of time and space. And believe me, PJ, if, you, if you've if you never read a DC comic before, but you're culturally aware of who Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman is, and you're like, who the hell is this guy in a chair? And how can his chair fly through space? And how can I get one? Because it's incredible. <laughs> Luckily, I had read Rock of Ages before I read this. So I knew who Metron I... was a little bit. I will, you know, I'm just going to say, like, don't don't ever be fooled into thinking that a series has to explain everything. Because if a dude turns up in a chair that can teleport across space, I'm just on board. That's enough. Like, I, I didn't know anything about this, but I was instantly sold. <laughs> we do a whole whole new series of people in time chairs. <laughs> people in time we'll chairs. We'll call it time chairs. Time chairs. Well, PJ, you know, put a pin in that. <laughs> There's an idea there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Metron, using his amazing uh, gift at summing up, a ser- summing up events in a kind of Shakespearean manner, says, uh, This was home of the greatest super champions of your universe, the most powerful, the most wondrous of their kind. Let us descend to investigate their ruin. <laughs> and then he teleports them down to this blasted hellscape that was once Wonderworld. It's very clinical, isn't it? That let us descend to investigate their ruin. This is an entire world of super beings that have been wiped out. And Metron's all very, ah, let's get down to business and have a look at what went on, shall we? Let's time team this. Do you think as a new god, I'm just curious about this, is Metron, like, does he, is he impressed by Wonderworld or generally is it beneath him? I don't do think, think Metron's impressed by anything. No, oh, okay, well, I guess I've answered my own question then, haven't I? Um, but uh, yeah, so everyone's dead which uh, isn't great. And um, apparently they were hoping to recruit an army of supermen, but that's just not going to happen now. Yeah, and Wonder Woman refers back to Rock of Ages. She says Aquaman mentioned the Wonder World, uh, but it's not how he described it. And we get another one of these fantastic Morrison pieces of dialogue <laughs> that harkens back to Kirby as well while we stare out across a ruined burning city with bodies littering the ground, one of them on a big spike and he says here on the ultimate rim of all things these legions are to defend the cosmos against the archaeotechnology buried in the primal pit which encircles the universe uh, which is amazing 
uh, I have to seem also a bit like the kind of cosmic ocean that, like, um, the Star Conqueror emerged from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and again, uh, oh my god, you can tell when Morrison's having fun. Like, um, it's, it's it's very reminiscent of some of the stuff they do in, like, All-Star Superman. Yeah. Where they find, like, the like the underverse, like a kind of hyper-gravitational pit below the universe. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Oh, and beautiful. I, I, I had no like having um, not read Rock of Ages. I had no idea that um, the inhabitants of Wonderworld were bigger than average humans. No idea at all. And, and then, of course, they find the moat, who's absolutely tiny here. And of course, and again, I just hadn't twigged any of what was going on. It's only when I read Rock of Ages I was like, oh, right. The moat is very, very big, but then he's also human-sized small, and now he's, like, incredibly small. So my read of this scene was a little different, I, and I think actually your read on it may be the correct one, but I think the moat in this panel is the same size as we saw him in Rock of Ages. I just think the difference is who's here, because my read on it was the last time we were on Wonderworld, it was Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman, who effectively are just three guys, you know, just three... Three guys. One of them's a king, but they're just three guys. What we now have here are gods. Metron, Barda, and Wonder Woman. They sort of think of ah. themselves on that level. And I always thought maybe there was a degree of your shape in Wonderworld would, would sort of partially be determined by how you saw yourself. And I think it says something, because I can completely believe that Wonder Woman would see herself as one of them, the same size as them. And, and that's how she would appear in Wonderworld. That's just my read of the scene, and it might be, you know, other people may have different oh. ideas on that. But yeah, that's where I come from. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think, um, I think the beauty of it is you can interpret it anyway. And 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 sad. And I do like, I do like the fact that like Wonder Woman is the only one to spot the moat. Mm. Like, uh, Barda points out that, like, uh, Mother Box senses life, but she can't see it. But Wonder Woman, who, like Superman, has all manner of, like, kind of crazy abilities, is like, oh, wait, I found him. And, you know, a, a lovely little touch where she says, his heart's still beating, but it's so fast, like a bird's, <laughs> which I think is is cool. Yeah. And then she she gently picks picks the moat up and says, you know, it's, it's all right. I'm Wonder Woman. This is Barda and Metron of New Genesis, and we're here to help. And the moat just manages to tell them that, they're too late. The anti-sun is risen from the abyss. And then we get just more <laughs> superb dialogue. Very portentous. As he says, the world's mantle cracked, the stars turned to blood over so quickly, the great seals shattered, first shockwave tore three moons from their moorings, and then it was over. And uh, i just like to say that in Jong's proud tradition of directly stealing lines, um, there is a brief reference to that line in, I want to say, volume five of After I think, <laughs> when a character describes an initial shockwave almost shearing three heavens from their moorings. <laughs> you sneaky boy. Oh, I know. It's all coming out now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and the moat tells them how Adam One tried to rally them against the power of the anti-sun. And I was like, who the hell is Adam One? But again... You see him only for two panels and you get all you need to know. And it wasn't until Rock of Ages that I got the context here. But um, 
yeah, we, we see in flashback, like, the forces of Wonderworld trying to, I guess, rally against this kind of, like, terrible destruction which is raining down on them. But ultimately, they failed. Like, they were meant to be the guardians against all the horrors that lived in the pit outside the universe. And um, instead, they they turned on each other and made war. And um, we see a dude whose head is on fire punching Adam One right through the chest. I'm sure we did see that guy in Rock of Ages as well. I can't remember his name, but... Yeah, I don't know if we get his name, but he's like he's like a kind of cosmic blacksmith, yeah. I think. A weird thing is, and I, this could be like a meta-narrative here, but Adam One is suggested to be like some kind of giant like robot, like a kind of mechanical man mm. made by some ancient force as a, as a guardian. And... I might be, again, reading far too much into this, but he's very, like, uh, Superman-esque in his dimensions. Yeah. And I know in years later in Final Crisis, in the best part of Final Crisis, Mm -hmm. which is the two-part Superman story that Morrison wrote in the middle, um, there is briefly a giant Superman statue in a higher dimension, which is piloted by Superman and Ultraman's thought forms hmm. briefly and i'm now inventing an, a headcanon here which suggests that this is that robot oh thing. i like that i like that a lot again can't confirm but that's <laughs> that's my read on it i mean listeners if you have your own headcanons about these things let us know it'd be great to collate theories oh that's good pj that's no that's You've been reading books on engaging with audiences. That's that's good. <laughs> I try. They never reply. <laughs> but um, but yeah. But then um, the narrative cuts short. PJ. Yeah. The the moat passes away in the palm of Wonder Woman's hand, and she just calmly says he's dead. And Metron says our fears are confirmed. If Wonderworld has fallen, there is no one to stand against the Warbringer. And then uh, we get a lovely close-up of a grim-looking Wonder Woman as she just says, you're wrong, Metron. And we turn the page to a double-page spread of Mr. Miracle. Uh, Well, there's a couple of pictures here, but we open with Mr. Miracle uh, narrating, essentially, the birth of the universe and the entire New Gogs kind of fourth-world kind of canon of Jack Kirby... As behind him, we get the most incredible Howard Porter recreation of Jack Kirby artwork. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. It's amazing. I, you know, I'm not going to go on about how much I love Mr. Miracle's costume, but I love Mr. Miracle's costume, and Porter draws the hell out of it. It's... It's so funny. Like I know, I know. Like uh, there's times where DC and Marvel have like re-released old Jack Kirby work, and they've tried to like modernize it by digitally coloring oh, it and yeah, stuff like it that. Oh yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But like, if you want to see what like Jack Kirby's artwork would look like in the modern day, just well, you've got it right here because how Pork is doing an incredible job of like even just the way he draws like some of the characters' teeth. Mm. If there's one guy in the foreground who's just got like a single <laughs> one big tooth that just kind of mirrors like a bite, um, it looks incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's and and basically, there's we, Mr. Miracle's narrating a war, a massive battle 
that we see behind him just between these two forces he talks of the old gods and the world the, the universe before Urgrund he says we don't know much about it but we do know they manufactured weapons beyond our comprehension and tore infinity apart one of those weapons survived imprisoned for 15 billion years in a gravity sink on the outer curve of space-time Morrison's having so much fun with the dialogue <laughs> the anti-sun the primordial annihilator in the language of New Genesis, its name is Mageddon, and it just broke free. And the camera flips to behind Mr. Miracle to show the assembled Justice League. Huntress, Aquaman, Superman, Green Lantern, Plastic Man, and Steel, all seated around the meeting table, um, looking concerned, shall we say. Yes. And this is where we get the title and credits. Now, I like that for this story, the title is just World War Three Part 1. And most other Morrison multi-part stories, the individual chapters would have their own names. But in this instance, they are all just called World War Three Part 1, Part 2, etc. And I really like that because it makes this feel like the blockbuster movie that comes at the end of the TV show of Morrison's JLA. Mm. Oh God, yeah, no, it's like laying laying the cards on the table, yeah. like from the get go. Yeah, um, and it's also very nice to see. Uh, and they dropped, they ditched this a while ago, but I do appreciate having a title which isn't that kind of horrible late nineties Photoshop one kind of digital text. Yes. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And then we, we also get the credits here. So Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Dell, inker, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, heroic age separator, Tony Bedard, associate editor, and Dan Raspler, editor. And then we get that blank page we mentioned earlier that should have been put earlier in the issue. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. They're having a moment. It's fine. Um, but yeah, in terms of like an opener, like what's that? Um, my math is, fa- is failing me, PJ, but that's one, two, three, four... Five, six, a six-page opener, which is very strong indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It tells you everything you need to know and the terrible stakes of what will happen if they fail. And now we, we get some concern from the League as Plastic Man's just like, well, that's a conversation killer. And Kyle says, well, what do we do? This this is coming our way. This is down to us, isn't it? <laughs> Which is a lovely little reaction where it's just like, oh, okay, so, you, yeah, we're we're dealing with this, right? Like, <laughs> that's 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 our job, yeah. Uh, and then Oracle radios in, and she sort of says, "Oh, yeah, earthquake stuff. I've got bugs. It took me longer than usual to join. I'm sorry, Aquaman. You asked for figures on military buildup, and it turns out there's a lot of military buildup all over the world. Yeah, because they've um." The League have a little bit of advance notice, which they don't always get. So thanks to the new gogs, they know a little bit about how uh, kind of Mageddon operates. So this is like really serious, but because they can't see any monsters just yet, they're more like, okay, well, we just need to like, we need to plan big. Like I'm not, like I'm alarmed, but I'm not like, I can't see anything to hit yet. So we need to think about Mm. this. And also a nice touch is, as we see Oracle kind of beam in, uh, we see that sitting far away on the opposite side of the table with his arms crossed, looking surly, is Orion <laughs> and um, his great big dog, Skirmer. Who is apparently pacing around the table because we then, after Oracle reports on the 
the the military build-up, and we see Superman and Green Lantern facing her floating hologram head. We then cut to Aquaman, and Sturmer is now behind him, uh, growling at him. <laughs> the um, and I do like that Aquaman is just doesn't like Orion, uh, probably because of that incident with the Scar Conqueror. Um, but uh, he's apparently made many formal complaints about Orion's attitude problem. Um, <laughs> tells him to control his dog. And I imagine Orion is infuriating to have a conversation with because instead of addressing the thing, he just says, you saw the remote sender, a little callback to what should have been the previous issue, mm-hmm. and says, Sturmer spell- smells war. He also advises him not to wave his remaining hand in front of the dog. Yeah, Sturmer bites. And Aquaman says, he bites me, he dies. And I have a question. Who did Aquaman make his previous formal complaint about Orion's attitude to? Who is the JLA's HR person? (sighs) Who is the HR person? I feel like they have a system for, like, filing complaints, but (laughs) I can't imagine they ever get acted on. Like, I don't know. Because, yeah, it's not Superman, right? No. Can't be. No. Bat- it's definitely not Batman. I'd say like Jean normally. Yeah. But he's not around. Maybe it's Zauriel at the moment. Hmm. I can actually see Zauriel. Yeah, yeah, Zauriel spends all his time on the Watchtower. He's got nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's like a member there's somebody on the league who we just never see in any in any shot. Admin boy. Yeah, maybe like the fifteenth member of the team is just um oh the joke's failing on me pj i need a um who's a who's a very obscure dc hero help me out ambush bug ambush bug yes it's ambush bug and that's why we never see ambush bug because <laughs> he's meta um but yeah so apparently uh you know admin aside the real question of the day is how do we stop mageddon and uh, we turn the page to get yet another just insane and brilliant picture. I, I, uh, how would you even describe this, PJ? I love this image so much. So it's like it, it's it's one panel across the top of two pages. It's like another double page spread, but made of multiple panels. And it's this weird. There's a big explosion thing in the background, surrounded by Kirby crackle and smoke, and then flying out of it, you get loads of pairs of like these these gray beings with a big orange sort of energy circle in there where their faces would be surrounded by force fields um and then in between each one they're sort of dragging effectively an octopus that's like sitting on a plate but the tentacles are sort of kept in place by the the plate collar thing and it's got red eyes and a little red dot in like the middle of of its face and they're all just sort of flying out into the universe it's i don't think i've done that justice (laughs) i think you have pj i don't think anyone could have explained that better it is an astonishingly weird and incredible image and kudos to both the artwork and morrison's imagination because um it's so much more interesting than just saying big scary monster coming out of space. Uh, it's just alien and weird, like truly alien, uh, which is something I appreciate. Mm. And um, yeah, what we kind of learn is that uh, you can't actually stop it. Um, it's it's a weapon. Once it's turned on, 
it just heads towards its target and it brings war and ruin. So basically those who are evil will start to feel it first. Then as it comes closer, the soldiers of chaos will beset the, the forces of order. Finally, the Mageddon warhead manifests in the heaven. Brother murders brother. The stars die. And at the end, the universe lies strewn with 10 billion corpses. And... Um, <laughs> Say what you will about Orion, uh, he knows how to, you know, he, he can really sell it. Uh, and he says, we face the doomsday machine. And the the other image that stretches all across the page here as, as Orion is describing the fallout from Mageddon is another, like, world on fire as these Kirby-type characters are fighting each other. And then in the background is an immense pair of red eyes. It's... Ah... Oh. These these pages, they're so good. <laughs> they're so good. I mean, if you're gonna, you know, if if you're gonna start the series anywhere, that isn't the beginning. Like this isn't a bad introduction to <laughs> uh, to JLA. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. And I do like that after that incredible, like grim introduction, Mister Miracle is just like, okay, look, this sounds bad, but you know. We're here to help, you know, we're with you all the way, even though it's, this is really rough. Yeah, he says, look, we got to hope that the Wonder Worlders maybe have, have wrestled Mageddon back into the Eternal Pit. And Superman basically goes, and if they haven't, and Orion goes, then hope is lost. <laughs> and um, Superman doesn't do lost causes. Superman so- is hope. He goes, Oracle, alert every leaguer, past and present, everyone. How long do we have? And then Sturmer just howls. Because he's a good boy. He's a good boy. <laughs> um, so now we turn the page, PJ. And and we get a one-page scene. I did not see this coming when I... I read this in the right order. And when I saw this page, I was like, oh my god, they're doing it. <laughs> And I had no idea what was going on, but I instantly fell in love with this helmet and, by extension, this character. Yeah. So we open with, like, a city street, but there's, like, dark clouds above with a, like, skull face in the clouds and lightning flashing down. And there's a figure just stood in the street as speech bubbles in tone. Tetzcatlipoca, god of darkness and ruin, wolf devouring the sun, the mighty dragon slips its chains, seven seals broken. And we are in Vanity, Oregon, and um, a man wakes up in bed, and uh, unknown to John, uh, this is this is Uno, or um, Aztec. Uh, well, I mean, the, you know, the caption helps there. The one that and says Aztec, yeah. <laughs> yes, the one that says Aztec, PJ, yes. And... Uh, He's having a nightmare, uh, and um, thank- thankfully, uh, he has a talking helmet sitting on a table to assure him that uh, humanity's twilight draws near. Yeah, and then it says, Aztec, run, no time left. It says something as well in, uh, I'm not sure what the language is, and I apologise, it's like ancient Mexican, Mayan, Spanish, I don't know, and I do apologise to everybody. <laughs> Uh, but then it just starts shouting, the helmet starts shouting JLA alert over and over again. Yeah, the um, it, 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 it chilled me then and it chilled me now, but like the helmet just going Aztec, run, 
Um, I didn't know who this character was, but I loved the helmet, and I was instantly like, oh no, <laughs> something bad is happening. Yeah. Like, this this series, like, I was, like, reading this going, like, is every issue of JLA like this? <laughs> like, this is so intense. <laughs> and then you were relieved to find that they are not. No, no. Occasionally it's fun as well. Um, <laughs> but then we cut to, uh, you know, the ghost zone. So, like, young John is like, the hell is going on now? <laughs> uh, where there is a, a crooked house under the foundations of reality... And somebody talks about how they can they can sit here and nibble away at the roots of reality. And as we go inside, um, it's uh, Luther and Prometheus. Yeah. And Lex says to Prometheus, you wrote excruciating poetry as an adolescent, I can tell. You were published by your school magazine. And Prometheus goes, yeah, I guess we are similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I knew, I, I knew Luther... Culturally, I'd seen the Superman cartoon. I, I'd seen, you know, some of the movies. Uh, again, no idea who Prometheus was other than I'd seen him in the electric chair in what should have been the last issue. Already thought he was the coolest character I'd ever seen, <laughs> ever. This continues to cement it. Um, got a hell of a costume. And uh, as they walk through the building, Luther's like... Um, Hmm. You can make yourself very wealthy patenting some of this equipment, Prometheus. Again, showing how Luther works. And uh, Prometheus goes, Money isn't what motivates me. If I want something, I just take it. I'm in this for the buzz. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and apparently uh, he's tackled the JLA before. Yes, he has. We we saw that. You hadn't, but we have I'm, now. I'm, I'm role-playing as young John here, basically. <laughs> yeah, and he says he learned his limitations, and he's read Oracle's files on Luthor's Injustice Gang, and he thinks Luthor was only let down by his help. And Luthor ever, he's always in character, <laughs> says, well, I was never formally connected with any Injustice Gang, but I take your point. <laughs> I'd also like to say that, like, Continuity is often seen as a bit a bit of a dirty word, but I think this does it perfectly yeah. because this allowed somebody who had not read any of the preceding stories to get right back into it with just a few lines. Yeah, like I don't need I don't know who Prometheus is. I don't know anything about Prometheus, but I do know that he has an amazing costume. He was kind of scary when he sat in the electric chair, and uh, he's he's fought the, J- the JLA before. Like it just gives you everything you need to know. Yep. Yeah. Yep, and you know that Luthor has also fought them as part of the Injustice Gang, and now they're forming a different Injustice Gang. And then we get this insane visual of Luthor and Prometheus walking out of the Crooked House, which is just floating in an endless white void, I should say. Another another thing that John nicked. And um, they're walking across like a, a literally like a bridge of stepping stones just floating in the void, Towards a giant B-shaped spaceship. That's the only way I can describe it, PJ. Yes, yes. And they're, they're, Luther's talking about, you know, working with professionals and that it has made a difference so far and they're feeling confident. And then I just love this this bit of character work where Prometheus, and I think you would, you would do this, yes. says to Luthor, so what's the Joker like? And Luthor says, frighteningly sick in the head, but strangely compelling company. <laughs> this is 
this is this is why Morrison is really, really, really good at dialogue. Like so good at dialogue. I, I can think of like a hundred writers who would do this scene and wouldn't have put in weird little asides like that. Mm. So good. Yeah. And I feel like it's the Joker is the villain that all the other villains would be curious about getting to know. Like, there's something this this crazy guy who fights Batman all the time and has, has taken on the Justice League and Superman but doesn't have any powers. What's up with that? And you would be curious, like, what's it like spending time with that? And even Prometheus is like, I really want to know. I need to ask this question. Yeah, because like Prometheus has a has a has a slightly twisted edge to him, which is vaguely Joker-esque, but he still has a very different kind of psychology. Like he works in a very different way. I think as he said, he's in it for the buzz. Mm. Like he talks about wanting to eliminate like justice in all its forms, but I got the impression that he's more like a kind of like a really destructive nihilist in a weird way. Like nothing matters, so he just wants to kind of like be a dick and have fun. Whereas like um the Joker is a completely different level of psychopathy basically yes <laughs> yeah i almost think i get why he isn't but i almost think it's a shame they didn't bring joker into this injustice gang as well mm. yeah that would have been fun i think it would have been you know luthor would have seen him as, as too unpredictable for this plan but it would have been nice to see him again i think maybe it's also on some level it's like a kind of um out with the old, in with the new yeah, kind of entirely. thing. Like we we saw like um traditional villains battle the league. And now we're seeing like a very like next gen group of hero of villains, sorry, like um because even now we're introducing the the Queen Bee. And if I understand correctly, PJ, there have been Queen Bees in DC before, but this is maybe just like a kind of new unconnected one. Yeah, this 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 story is her first appearance, I, I believe. Um, she was an original creation of of Morrison and Porter, using sort of some elements of the previous characters, the previous Queen Bees that DC had used. But yeah, she she was an original creation for this story. And interestingly, now Luther has associated himself with three new villains or kind of kind of challenges for the league, who are. Well, they're not like kind of they're not going to rob a bank, if you know what I mean. This does feel like a kind of passing of the torch in an odd way between like an old era of the JLA and a new one, where like we're having three new villains who are fighting for very different reasons. Like it feels like the stakes have been kind of elevated in a way. Yeah, completely. And I guess you could sort of say Luthor is the original DC supervillain, uh, certainly mm. one of the earliest in in one guise or another. Whereas Prometheus was and and the general yeah the general is a combination of two characters who had been around before but this version of the general is something new that was only introduced in JLA and then queen b who's only introduced in this story so yeah very much passing of the torch from the old to the new it's just a shame that the new never really stuck around <laughs> they didn't know what they had pj that's the problem they fumbled the torch I do like that. Um, oh, a good a Prometheus joke there, PJ. Very nice. <laughs> I do like that. You know, you're, we're dealing with these incredibly powerful beings, and then you've just got Luther in the middle of them, 
which I, I think actually just speaks wonders to how amazing Luther is as a villain because I think any one of these beings could just kind of destroy him in an instant. Yeah. So, yeah, the fact that he's there and commanding their respect just should worry us. And I think there's, uh, again, very telling of Luthor's character here because he refers to Queen Bee by her name. He says, oh, my dear Zazala. And she says, addresses by our title, Luthor, because she's got the SZZ at the end of all the words. <laughs> um, and then they get onto the spaceship and Prometheus bows before her and kisses her hand. Luthor bows to nobody. Mm, very good point, PJ. And oh no, God, yeah, that's that's a wonderful point. Yeah, I'd never even picked up on that. And even with like, even with Prometheus kind of bowing, you get the impression that he's kind of taking the piss a little bit, little bit. Yeah, I think I've known people like Prometheus who are always kind of taking the piss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, but apparently, um, this little group have been kind of plotting for a little while, really, and um. As we kind of wander through the ship, um, the Queen Bee kind of refers to... Um, the, what did um, what did Prometheus call it originally, PJ? Was it the, the Phantom Zone? The, or, no, the did ghost he call zone. it the Ghost Zone? Yeah. But, um, well, um, we realise that like he's not the only one who's aware of it. And um, as the Queen Bee says, and I'm not going to do the accent, but she says, uh, this unregion of infinitely compressed space is known by countless names. The Stasis Zone, the Skill Zone, the Phantom Zone. Put a pin in that. Is- On call, our hive world, we call it the Honeycomb. It facilitates travel across vast interstellar distances. Now, PJ, this isn't the Phantom Zone, right? I don't know. Is it the same Phantom Zone that Krypton used to banish prisoners to? Is it a different zone with the same name? I genuinely don't know. Well, Morrison thinks about this sort of stuff a lot, so I guess maybe there's a different region of it, which is the Phantom Zone? My guess is that the Phantom Zone is huge. Like, like mm. absolutely, it's like almost its own universe. So Prometheus could build his crooked little house in his little corner of it and never encounter anything else that was in there. So potentially it could be the Phantom Zone. It's also an idea that Morrison's come back to a lot. Like, even in um, 52, Mm. there was the concept of, was it Universe B, I think? Which was like, I think it was the Ghost Zone. Yeah. Like, I do feel that that was just Morrison shining through there. Yeah, yeah. And there's also um, a a really fun bit where Luther hints of there being something more that's useful about the ghost zone which we haven't referred to yet and then they start walking um oh god how do you describe it pj like a well it's, it's, let's let's go to prometheus's speech bubble here he says ha this is like that bit in 2001 because it's a circular ship and they're sort of walking up the circle so like that sequence in 2001 where um where dave is running around the ship but he's running like up the side of the circle, across the ceiling, back down, because of the gravity there. So the shot we see is, you know, obviously from his perspective, he's just running in a straight line, but we see he's running around a circle. I like that Prometheus is having fun, yes. basically. <laughs> oh, but apparently there's an army of um, bee soldiers, and uh, they're gathering on the frontiers of the solar system, and they will go wherever the queen is. Ooh. 
But PJ, who's the who's the um well, who's the final member of this little posse? Well, sitting in a large chair without a shirt on, it's the general. As Luthor walks up and says, General Eiling, it's been some time since we did business. And the general just says, she says, I was on that asteroid for a month. It felt like 10 million years. He's also had a shave. Yes. Yes, he has. He's the shaven man. (laughs) Uh, And um, he's also just massive. Like, um, he's easily like twice as big as Luthor in this shot. It's ridiculous, isn't it? (laughs) But there's a great point where, um, you know, the, the, the pieces are in place and um, we've met all our villains. And Luther says, don't forget, Superman is mine. We've studied their weaknesses. We've monitored their every move, undermined their intelligence networks and used their toilets. <laughs> Planning is over. This they is don't the... even know. Sorry, PJ. <laughs> I was going to say, this is the thing. When he says he's stood in front of the general, this incredibly immense creature who is indestructible and super strong and could squash Luthor like a bug and Luthor is not scared in the slightest and even is giving him orders superman is mine and the 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 big penny drop pj is they don't even know we're here they don't even realize they left the back door open and we cut to out in the ghost zone and we see this b ship flying towards some structure which is kind of obscured by the edge of the frame we can't quite work out what it is but arguably some massive thing out out in the ghost zone they don't even realize they left the back door open (laughs) yeah (laughs) and we cut from there back to the watchtower where Plastic Man and Zauriel are in the trophy room, specifically the hats and helmets section of the trophy room. <laughs> <laughs> um, Plastic Man has become a stepladder so Zauriel can put what I assume is Mr. Mix's Derby from the Crisis Times 5 story in a cabinet. Yes, which we never truly understood what it was doing there or what context it held for the greater story. But now it's in safe hands. Yes. Yeah, and of course, uh, continuing the friendship we that has been developing, like between between issues of Plastic Man and Zariel, just spending a lot of time hanging out together. Um, Plastic Man's like, uh, so hey, um, I know I'm the wrong guy to be pointing this out, but like things are pretty serious, right? Uh, what's the scoop from heaven? To which Zariel says. Uh, basically, like, I wouldn't expect much help there. They're already planning how to build a new universe should this one fall to the Warbringer. <laughs> yeah, so Plastic Man says, okay, so heaven's given up on us, so we can't really sit this one out back home with a six-pack in the sports channel. And Zariel just says, I haven't given up, and neither will you when it comes to it. Which is nice. I mean, I think Zariel sees things in people, even Plastic Man, who's historically an idiot mm-hmm. but isn't actually an idiot yes and then Zariel looks at his fine collection of hats because as Zariel said he is I think he said in a previous issue he's a hoarder yeah he likes organizing <laughs> stuff one of his collections is missing the helmet of Prometheus there's a little cabinet with a sign and it's empty yeah uh, and Zariel looks terrified and punches the intercom and screams get me Batman hmm <laughs> 
So then we we cut to outside the watchtower where the the new gods are basically adding to it. They're fortifying it, making the watchtower able to stand up and and house a new god's army effectively. And Superman within the watchtower is talking to Batman and saying, you know, there's there's machines out there from the world of gods. This could be the highest level threat we've ever had to face. And this is Ah, where Batman says... No man mentioned the coming of a Warbringer back when we formed the current League. Midsummer's Nightmare, people. Midsummer's Nightmare. So, like, at least on some level, this has to have been on the cards for a while. Yeah. Like, ed- within the within the writer's studio, like, Wade and Morrison and DC Editorial must have just said, look, we maybe we don't 100% know what it is yet. But we're we're laying some groundwork here for there being a warbringer. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's why I felt like we needed to cover Midsummer's Nightmare on this podcast mm. because it's part of the story. You see, there was method to our madness mm-hmm. even then, and like no man wanted to elevate humanity by turning everyone into superheroes. Basically, yeah. Hmm. 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 What an interesting plan. <laughs> but Batman says, you know, we'll have more information when Wonder Woman and Barda get back. But right now, outside of prophecy and some inconclusive evidence of military buildup, we don't have much in the way of proof that the world is about to end. And he says, I'm more concerned that Prometheus is back. Yeah, I like. I like that Batman is cynical. I don't think he's downplaying this entirely because he's, you know, kind of he is a leaguer, you know, like he he he's not skept he's not like a a non-believer. Like he knows the world is full of cosmic gogs and magic and weird crap. But like he's a practical fellow and he's like, look, we have to deal with the threats that are in front of us right now. And Prometheus boasted we wouldn't see him coming next time. So I'm worried about this. Yeah. He says he replaced Prometheus's helmet in the Watchtower after running some tests on it in the Batcave, and now it's gone. There could be any number of explanations, but then he just says, Prometheus almost annihilated the League single-handed. We can't take the risk that there's even a chance he's back. Otherwise, Doomsday Machines are your forte, Superman. And we get this great shot of Superman sitting in the in the in the monitor womb, which we don't see very often now, mm. sadly. And looking Maybe mildly concerned, as every screen around him is full of images of Batman saying, and if we can't stop the end of the world, who can? It's a very subtle thing, but the fact that Porter's drawn not a look of fear or worry, but just mild concern on Superman's face, that should be enough. And it is enough to let you know this is, this is big. Something bad is going down. I think it's also the kind of it's the it's a conversation that Superman would only have with Batman in a weird way. Like um, this is a private conversation where this is the only time in which he would show even a hint of concern. I think, yeah, because he he has to be a symbol for everyone else. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, (laughs) and even though Batman is like the ultimate cynic. He also believes in what Superman is as well. So I think even though he's kind of saying, you know, and if we can't stop the world, who can? Like, there's an there's an element of sincerity in that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Batman believes in Superman 100%, possibly more than anyone else. 
And that's why we have PJ on the show, everybody. That is very profound. Because I believe in Batman and Batman believes in Superman. But of course, PJ, with Superman on our side, nothing bad could possibly happen. No, this is which all is, going to be tied up by the end of the issue. We're all good. Yeah, which is why we shouldn't be concerned at all that, um, well, we see the general, Luther, Prometheus and Queen Bee kind of walking down the corridor towards us, essentially stepping out of a great big circle of white nothingness as they leave the ghost zone. Yeah, and the general asks, how long have you guy's been meeting here Prometheus says look I found this mothership purely by chance didn't think there was anything else in the ghost zone with me I recognised it from the news reports after the Martian invasion last year it's one of the white Martian ships from the very first storyline you see everybody it's all tying together (laughs) and it turns out the white Martian ship has a back door that leads to the watchtower Yes, and weird little panel here where Prometheus's colouring is all wrong. Mm. Yeah, he's he's grey rather than purple in this panel for some reason, but um, we'll let that slide. We'll forgive it. Uh, anyway, so Prometheus leaves leaves the team and says, "I'll join you after I deal with the eyes and the ears." And um, and then we see um, uh, the general Luther and uh, Queen Bee walking down towards a table which has a model of the watchtower and a big hologram of the planet earth and we've seen this room before pj yes we have yeah prometheus and luthor were in this room at the end of the issue that should have been the last issue i guess my only question pj is is this a room we're meant to know from the watchtower like is it a room that we've seen the other leaguers in at any point i don't I don't think so. I don't think this room is is actually on the watchtower. I think this is still on the Martian ship, um, but they can access the watchtower from here. The only the only thing that would make me disagree with that, PJ, is that later on, when Luther gets, you know, and Kyle confronts him. Yeah, but if there's a back door between the Martian ship and the watchtower, Kyle could just walk through that. But we'll, well, well, I suppose we'll cover it when we get there. Yeah, we'll get we'll get there. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So um, basically, uh, Luther says, "Well, this is our nerve center." So essentially, it's like a, we found a spare room and we just set up shop, basically, and we have you know power and rent are free, and it's ideally situated for planting bombs. They tell me your body is indestructible and self-regenerating. Fascinating. <laughs> and the general just says. You bet. He's not much of a talker anymore. No, his brain's not really running on great hardware anymore. <laughs> and then that's the moment. Luthor now just sits down and declares war on the Justice League. So Steel, meanwhile, is uh, plugging into, with his hand, plugging into uh, one of his machines and uh, he's chatting to Oracle and says, look, uh, I'm interfacing with our processors, just because you suggested. Uh, what am I looking for? Because Oracle has bugs in her system, and being a tech genius, she's like, something is wrong here. I need to. We need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, and Steele just says, well, I, I trust your intuition completely. Let me run a full diagnostic. Everything looks fine. And then he says, no, wait. We do have a power drain in the dining out section. Uh... And then he loses Oracle. And Oracle is just staring at her screen, shouting, Oh my God, Steel, are you there? 
there's a worm in the system. It looks like, as on her screen, she just sees a flaming torch and the word boo. Yes, and uh, a voice speaks from off, off panel and says, a girl in a wheelchair is Oracle. Well, say goodnight, Oracle. And we get an amazing picture of, of Steel here as he fires up his boot jets, kind of screaming, we've lost Oracle, she says they're here with us. And, um, yeah, I, I the General and Queen Bee walk through the JLA meeting room as um, the Queen Bee almost casually kind of shoots Kyle with her gun. Just sort of stuns him, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and the General says, kill the lights, give me some darkness, give me some terror. Which I love. Yeah. And, uh, I, yeah. It's all going to hell, PJ. Yeah, it really is. Kyle and Huntress have stare in terror both been paralyzed by queen bee and someone shouts they've been here all along as luther says the penny drops too late and presses a button and the watchtower explodes and we get this great panel of with this massive hole blown in the side of um of the watchtower we have Zatriel kind of clinging to a table or a piece of furniture and screaming, only his speech bubble is completely silent, no text at all, which I love, as the Huntress is blown out, not sucked out, into space by the explosive decompression and Kyle has force fielded up, which is a nice touch. Yeah. I guess it's kind of instinctual. Yeah. And then Queen Bee shoots Plastic Man... And the general's got two massive guns now, and he's he's ready to fight. Yeah, so not a good opening move from the JLA. Um, at least four of their team have effect- effectively been incapacitated. Um, and I've got to say, I love how Porter and well, I, I would have to say the rest of the art team are colouring Kyle's force field here. Yes. And it's a really small touch, but I love how Queen Bee has a matching force field as the atmosphere kind of shoots out of the ship. and uh, But it's yellow. It's just a nice little touch. Mm, yeah. And then we, we cut back to the monitor womb where Superman is still sat there and he hears Luthor. Luthor radios in, says, Good evening, Superman. I did warn you. And Superman looks horrified. He's, he's, his eyes are wide. His mouth is open as he shouts, Luthor, my God, no, not now, Luthor. We're all in terrible danger. Which Luther says, understatement of the year, goodbye, JLA. And he presses a button again and says, and two. And we just see more explosions ripping their way up the tower of the watch, up the body of a watchtower, just kind of blowing it to pieces and also kind of decimating all the um, the new gogs technology, which, uh, which was being bolted to it. And yeah, that's the end. That's of the, the end of the issue. The end of the issue. <laughs> It is crazy how much happens in that issue. And yet, it's really well paced. Yeah. Yeah, like, in, in my head, I always sort of remember the uh, the Luthor blowing up the watchtower in the moment of Superman pleading with him, not now. This is There's bigger things going on. Please, not now. That's like, in a, maybe the second issue, part two. I always mm. forget, that's how they ended part one. That's just the first part of the story. 
Oh, yeah, because I guess like more so than pretty much like any story in this run, this has always felt to me like one big story. And um, particularly reading it in trade, um, I I often just didn't notice where one issue ended and another began. Yeah, yeah, it because it, I, I, I can never remember where the breaks are. And it's only because we've got these blacked out caption boxes that I, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I'm at the end of the issue there. Okay, I won't read any further. But, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's a really small touch also, but I like that when Luther reveals his hand to Superman, it, it it's, it's a very subtle thing, and it's quite hard to describe, but I like that Superman isn't like, oh, my God, Luther, you're back. You know, he's just... Because Luther always tries to kill Superman, like he's he's used to this kind of crap. He's not surprised that he's ha- that it's happened. He's just horrified that it's happening now, which is like a really small thing, quite hard to describe. But it's just when he goes like, "Not now, we're all in terrible danger." It's almost like even at this moment where your worst enemy has turned up to try and destroy you, he's he's he, when in fact he says, "We're all in terrible danger." It's a small thing. He is, as you say, PJ, he's trying to plead to him to realise, like, good God, like, you can kill me tomorrow, but please, just not now, yeah. for God's sake. Yeah, right now the world needs me, and I need to save the world. Just, I feel like it would be one of those moments where Superman would, even if he had the chance, turn himself into Luthor the next day mm. if, if Luthor just let him get on with stopping Mageddon first. Yeah, no, 100%. It's the selflessness of it. You rightly said, PJ, it's like Superman recognising that, like, the world needs me right now. Like, we, I, look, name a time, I will be there. <laughs> you know, name a time, you can be there, you can ambush me, I will act surprised, but just please, not now. Please, I'm begging you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, it's it's a, yeah, it's a really packed issue. It, it is. It's insane. And it's so good. I'm I'm so excited to keep going. It's you can tell when Morrison is having fun. Yes, and you can tell when Morrison is finally just letting loose what they've been planning for a long time. Like I think you know we talked about how there's been some issues which have felt like maybe like a little rushed. Like Morrison's had like so many ideas they've been kind of battling to get them all down in 22 pages, mm. but like this one feels really well paced and i wonder if it's because it's a it's a six-part story you know it, it's because the whole thing would have been plotted out rather than you're not packing stuff in it can take its time yeah yeah and they make really effective use of of all of the space every and it's as well it's sort of that you don't know yet where this story's gonna go at all it it's it's a complete mystery, and just flicking through, it's like, oh god, what hap- that happens in that issue? That makes no sense to me. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful escalation of kind of um, stakes as well. Like we know exactly what's on the cards here. Like it's literally kind of the death of kind of the solar system, maybe the whole universe, yeah. probably the whole universe actually. Like it's the stakes are terrible. But you've also got the cosmic challenge perfectly balanced with this kind of real-world physical challenge of the Injustice Gang. Like, it really is so well done of, like... I mean, 
not everyone gets like a six issue kind of series to kind of like tell a bigger story. But like, if you if you do ever get that chance, I think you can learn a lot from this story about how to set up a challenge and then kind of pay it off. It's it's remarkable. I think it's another thing that Morrison's JLA and Busick's Avengers have in common. They built to like this final story. Busick went all out and did like his his twelve part gang war thing, um, <laughs> but did finish his run with this epic, huge story, which ended with some great moments again. Um, and yeah, I I think I think you're right. I don't think there are a lot of great creators who would get to build to something like that and sort of end their run on their terms with the big blowout story. And then you got to feel sorry for the creative team following them because it's like, mm. oh, I've just got to do a normal story to start my run. Okay, great. But, but you know, in the moment, it's amazing. Yeah, that is the only kicker, isn't it? Because, like, Morrison has consistently elevated the stakes throughout the course of their run for the JLA. They've, you know, kind of... They've shown you what a new era of kind of superheroics could look like and it's like how do you end that run i guess okay i guess we're gonna have them fight the primordial annihilator like literally the concept of war yeah and yeah i guess that's the only problem isn't it it's almost like it's such a good ending that it is very hard to do anything after it which feels like it does it justice i think that's probably why obviously they knew at this point that Mark Wade was following on the book and that at some point Brian Hitch would be coming on and following Porter, although you know, Porter does a few issues of, of Wade's first story, the, the Tower of Babel. And But I think that's probably why there's, there's a fill-in issue in between, a quite small story about the Atom, and then at the same time as that issue came out, you had the, the one-shot, the Heaven's Ladder one-shot for Wade and Hitch to get started on, where the Earth gets stolen, the entire planet... <laughs> And it's so that they can start big and then go into their run proper. <laughs> yeah, it kind of... Yeah, for a long time, this is how I'd kind of think of the JLA, that, like, their threats were... And I guess this is all kind of Morrison's handiwork, but, like, their threats were more cosmic, conceptual, weird. Mm. Whereas um, I think with... Certainly with Busick's run on, on, on the... Um, on the Avengers, you could you could maybe like expect more to have a bit more grounded, even when it's like, oh, what's the challenge this week? It's like, oh, well, a city in South America has disappeared and been replaced by like a weird kind of Conan the Barbarian y kind of city. Mm. And it's like, okay, well that's fantastical. But the Avengers still have to fly there in jets and then kind of explore the place on foot in a weird way. Yeah, they're still based in their big house in New York rather than their watchtower on the moon. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, or it's like, um, oh, um, Ultron robots have invaded Sokovia, you know, and we have to go in and stop and stop them. And it's like, okay, it's very, it's very physical, very real world based, where it's like, oh, I might open the JLA and expect them to be fighting... I don't know, like the Avatar of Sadness or something, who's come from the conceptual realm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a very. I think this this run on JLA, I think, is a very unique moment in the series. I think other creators have tried to tap into it a bit. There was a recent run that sort of went more cosmic, but it really called back to older stories because it was all about the monitor and the anti monitor again, and 
than sort of like their creator is what it went into. So it felt like it was drawing a bit from the Morrison era in terms of the tone it was going for, but it still wasn't quite doing it in the same way and for my money wasn't quite as good. And a lot of the um, new 52 JLA stuff lent very heavily on the... Well, I was going to say New Gogs connection, but more of a Dark Side connection, really. Yeah, they've sort of turned Dark Side into DC's Thanos, haven't they? Which isn't Which what is that character <laughs> is. It's. I think it, it goes back to see Dark Side fought Thanos in DC versus Marvel. Fine, that kind of makes sense to me. But yeah, Dark Side isn't Thanos, and I think that's the mistake they're making. Mm. You know, no, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because you know, obviously, for many reasons, Thanos was kind of like a poor man's dark side. If you knew comics, mm. obviously, we don't just live in a comics world, though. We can't deny the impact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has had on things. And so, yeah, DC are like, okay, we need to reboot everything for the New Fifty Two. Let's tell the JLA again. So the JLA origin story is going to be these incredible heroes coming together to fight a force that no solo hero could face alone and it's dark side and of course he's kind of as you rightly said pj he's 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 just thanos he's just a big scary spaceman as opposed to like oh my god it's dark side i think i'm just dying yeah like i i think i'm just dying because he's near me Darkseid is a god he is a new god he rules a planet and he that's the level he operates on he's he's a massive cosmic threat thanos is a cosmic threat but in a very different way he courts death he's trying to bring balance to the universe in his own his own way darkseid is wants to rule darkseid wants to rule the universe control everything he wants ultimate power they have very different motivations and yeah dark darkseid dark isn't really like a conqueror no in the traditional sense, he's not—he's not out to conquer Earth because it's fun or he wants for gold. You know, it's more like there's a horrible, oppressive, terrible inevitability to Darkseid. <laughs> Ignoring the "I am inevitable" comment of Thanos, yes. <laughs> like I don't think um, Darkseid has ever been scarier than in Rock of Ages. Yeah, agreed, agreed, and that's why I think, other than the Kirby originals and maybe Superman the animated series. Rock of Ages is the only other dark side story I really hold up. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I, and maybe this is just one of the pressures kind of facing like um, an industry where, you know, sales sales are tough. Like even Marvel and DC, like that their movies make them money, their comics don't. And it's like we get this kind of recycling of recognisable concepts in a weird way it's like now well of course for JLA are just battling dark side every week because he's the big he'll sell tickets yeah. like he'll get people in in a weird way and it was kind of nice in this era where for whatever reason you maybe could be a bit more experimental yeah Morrison brought a lot of new things to the canon and maybe the reason we haven't seen Prometheus much since, the reason we haven't seen the general much or people have been forging new weird directions now is it because they're simply not recognisable and it's more beneficial to do 
the Joker battling the JLA again. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also because other writers couldn't get a handle on the characters. Like, look at how the Batman comics ruined Prometheus. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and as we talked about it at the time, there was a JLA story where Prometheus turned up again. But it's it's a little... It's not good. It's an infamously bad comic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Like, I I just... I don't know. Maybe it's just a mindset thing. But, like, I'd be... If, for whatever reason, DC came a-knocking PJ, and they were like, PJ, John, you two have the leading Morrison-era-themed JLA podcast out there. <laughs> come and write, Come and write a run on JLA. You see, my thinking would be, okay, well, let's let's hit a few of the greatest hits. We've got to do a couple of callbacks to old thing old things. Let's revamp a couple of old ideas. I'd also like to do something completely new at some point. I'd be like, let's introduce a completely new villain yeah. or something. I'd want to add to the canon rather than just kind of recycle old stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think a mixture of of the old and the new is what you well like the injustice gag <laughs> that mm. we have at the moment, a mixture of old ideas and concepts and characters with completely new ideas and concepts and characters, I think is is the ideal, and I think that nicely actually sums up the entire Morrison run. Well, indeed, and I guess like kind of not directly off the back of this, but kind of you know down the line off the back of this series, I believe Morrison kind of got into a fa- a relationship with DC where. They had creative freedom, I believe, mm. to kind of develop old, unused concepts. That's why you got Seven Soldiers of Victory. It was like they said, look, Morrison, look, we like you. We'll keep you on retainer. Just if you ever feel like doing anything with the back catalogue, that would be interesting. Let us know. And so Morrison goes, okay, I'm going to do Seven Soldiers of Victory. And I'm going to take seven really obscure characters. And I'm going to give them a complete lick of paint. And I'm going to do a little kind of four-part series of each of them. And then if anyone else wants to do anything with them afterwards, they're there. They're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at their Batman run as well. For better or worse, they they brought in Batmite, the Batman of mm. Zur-NR. <laughs> you know, all these wild <laughs> concepts from like the 50s and 60s that hadn't really been seen for decades. And yeah, Morrison brought them back, put a different spin on them and, and used them. Yeah. Like kind of, again, this weird... And again, I said it before, never really appreciated that this run would be considered very Silver Age. Mm. I, although that was that was a lot of the discourse around it. But like, yeah, I always felt it was very modern. But there's definitely that element of taking old old things from the past, old sensibilities, like maybe, and really adapting them for the modern era. The, the modern era of 22 years ago but yeah <laughs> which which call me i don't know is it am i am i you know here i am kind of bemoaning dc for rehashing the past and i know we're doing a nostalgic podcast here but am i wrong to still think of this series as feeling weirdly modern in a way that comic some comics since haven't felt yeah i think that's that's a fair comment um if you compare this to i don't know the uncanny x-men run chris claremont was doing at the time which was not very good because no, it sadly. felt like a chris claremont claremont book from the 70s which wasn't what people wanted anymore yeah and i, and I remember um um at the time when my brother was collecting the um well not long after this when my brother was collecting the uk panini um 
X-Men reprints, like uh, Essential X-Men or, mm. or whatever it was called, and you would have a Grant Morrison new X-Men story in the same collection as a Chris Claremont, like... Extreme know, X-Men. Extreme X-Men story. And never has the 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 contrast been more jarring. Like, I, I very much like the Claremont Byrne original run on X-Men. Yep. It, it's a good read. Didn't read quite as well 20, 30 years later, oddly enough. It's because Claremont's writing hadn't really changed. That was the problem. And I think... I felt like, because Panini at that point with the Essential X-Men, they stopped printing X-Men because that was the second title that was out at the time, but wasn't anywhere near as popular as... as no, sorry, Uncanny X-Men, they stopped printing. Um, X-Men became new X-Men, and that's what Morrison was on. And they didn't yes. print any Uncanny X-Men until after the Morrison run had finished, just because what was going on in Uncanny X-Men was, I think, seen as really bad at the time. Was that the... I forget, was that the Claremont run at the time? No, Uncanny no. Claremont X-Men. had been on Uncanny, but then moved off Uncanny and went on to Extreme. I can't remember. Later on in the Uncanny run, it's Chuck Austin, and it is really, really bad. I can't remember oh, who was on yeah. it before him. But I almost feel like they didn't particularly want to do Extreme X-Men either, but there were elements of it in both New X-Men and Extreme that tied into each other. Like, you get Bishop and Sage crossing over from Extreme into New X-Men for yeah. the to investigate the death of Emma Frost, for example, and things like that. I I always felt that like Extreme X Men was almost like a way of kind of keeping Claremont happy. Yeah. In an odd way. Because it was very much like he's like, I'm taking these characters and we're kind of going off to just have like completely our own adventure. Like there was very little kind of cross referencing with the wider X universe in an odd way. They were dealing with new enemies, new threats. Like a new kind of overarching plot in a way. Yeah, yeah. But it was weird. Even after Morrison left New X-Men and it suddenly went back to being a more traditional superhero book <laughs> where they brought back the costumes in the Joss Whedon era um, of Astonishing X-Men, that's when Claremont again went back to Uncanny X-Men. And I actually quite liked his first storyline in that era because he went, he lent into the 80s Captain Britain stuff, brought back the Fury oh. and had Alan Davis on the art. And that yes. worked for me. I liked that. But the rest of it, I still found very forgettable. I think, again, Morrison casks a big shadow. Mm. Like, you know, it came on board, completely shook up the JLA, brought them back from the absolute doldrums, made them one of the most popular books at the time. X-Men, you know, before Morrison joined X-Men, like, it was pretty dire for a while. Yeah, New X-Men completely changes everything. Marvel gets cold feet a little bit, thinks this is a bit too radical. It doesn't quite end the way either party wanted it to. No. And then both series are left kind of asking, well, what do we do now that Morrison's left? And I think JLA maybe fared a little better than X-Men, perhaps? Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, because you, you get like Mark Wade, who is a great writer anyway, following Morrison and doing some interesting stuff with the League. And then there are missteps after Wade leaves, like um, much as we love him, as as we've said, Busick's brief run on it, the sequel to JLA Avengers, not great. It's it's not. It really isn't great, sadly. But yeah, X Men immediately after Morrison is. You, I think it is actually straight after Morrison. You get Whedon, which was a a good run. Um, but then everything else sort of wasn't matching up to it for a bit. Wasn't that the, 
weird thing with Astonishing X-Men, because again, I I haven't read it in a very long time, but I, I remember really, I did really like the four Astonishing X-Men books, but they were very delayed, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, there were huge I- delays on it, because um, I think they did it as two series, technically, although it was issues one to 24, but they 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 specifically built in a gap in the schedule between issues 12 and 13. Um, you're you're really good with this sort of thing, PJ. When it comes to like the differences between, oh, I don't know, like kind of um, exciting Spider-Man and hmm. expi- and Spider-Man, Web of Peter Parker, sort of thing. You know, like every series would have like its own ethos. But for a while, didn't like something like Astonishing X-Men almost become like a kind of like a showcase of different creators? Yes, exactly. And it was, yeah, like not entirely like out of canon. It definitely but like almost more in like a kind of self-contained little bubble. I think the thing is with Astonishing X-Men, it sort of became, (laughs) and you know, the first person who did it was Joss Whedon and, you know, he's fairly problematic now. Uh, And then he was followed by Warren Ellis. Oh God. So yeah. yeah. Uh, (laughs) Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that book hasn't aged well in terms of who was on it when it started. Yes, it's weird. And, I wonder, I'm not entirely sure why Astonishing X-Men got so delayed, the the original um, kind of Whedon and uh, Cassidy run. I think it was, I think because Whedon was very busy at the time with TV and film and stuff, and I think it was just he was turning in the scripts late, I think. Well, a random idea as well, um, Planetary, Mm. Ellis and Cassidy, the ending of Planetary was very, very, very delayed by like years. And I do remember reading, and I, I, I could have this completely wrong. I think there was illness involved. Oh, okay. I think Cassidy got quite ill for a while. And I do wonder if the two series may have been, certainly the ending may have been roughly running at the same time. Because Planetary started way before Astonishing, but it was also delayed by way longer. So I do, I do wonder. Yeah, could be, could well be. I do remember around the time when they were doing Astonishing X Men, John Cassidy uh, came in and actually directed an episode of Joss Whedon's TV show at the time, Dollhouse. That show has aged terribly, given the revelations about Joss Whedon since then. Do not try and rewatch it. But that one episode that John Cassidy directed, he'd never directed anything before, but Whedon brought him in because he's like, well, he's a good artist, to probably have a good eye, and it is one of the most beautiful episodes of TV. That I've seen, it's really weird and and does some very interesting stuff. So I don't know if that got in the way of the schedule as well. I can't remember hmm. the timelines of it all, but yeah. I always remember thinking because I know uh, we're very much off topic now, but Cassidy, um, I always felt did a really good job of designing, redesigning the costumes in the Scunching X Men. Agreed. Yeah, and I know that informed the look of those characters for a good while, like as they appeared in like House of M, for example. Yes. They were very much the astonishing team. And I always I always thought like if 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 Marvel or DC came to me and said, We want you to run X series and you can assemble your own dream team, I'd be like, Well, I don't know if, if he'd be available to be the main series artist or whether he'd even be right, but I want to get John Cassidy in just to do the costumes. Yeah. No, I think that because I thought I loved his Wolverine, which sort of was a very nice, had elements of of the classic Wolverine costume, but with a, an update to it that was 
probably the first update Wolverine had had for years, which looked great. I love his Kitty Pride outfit. Mm, so good. And it's, and again, it's that weird thing where he could make them look like they were wearing real fabric, mm. but didn't feel the need to add so much extra detail that it became ridiculous. Yeah. He's a very talented artist. Maybe we get John Cassaday to do the costume designs, Howard Porter to draw the series, and covers yes. by Gavin Mitchell. Yes, quite, yeah. Because <laughs> apparently I can't and, do a comic uh, without him. And beat, beats by Dre. <laughs> um, if we've, do you think we've taken this as far as we can, PJ? I think we'd better stop, to be honest. <laughs> we better we better stop, yeah. Um, with that in mind, I should say, and speaking of him, a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. Uh, and uh, congratulations to him on the success of his recent, recent Kickstarter, which has been great. Oh, yes. Have a look, folks, for uh, Spatchcock Investigates. The Kickstarter's over, but I'm sure you'll still be able to buy copies off Gavin. And I've, I've read the book, and it's brilliant. <laughs> And PJ? Uh, yes, and then out. another massive thank out to Elliot Red for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, Justice. He has recently released a whole album of songs on YouTube. Go to YouTube, search for Elliot Red, and give the whole thing a listen. Very nice, very nice. And uh, if you enjoy hearing PJ and I talk, you can find us on social media. We're very nice, or we at least think we are, uh, and our, our details are in the description. So, PJ, if we really have exhausted this avenue of pleasure, he said, pausing. We have. Wonderful, wonderful. So, PJ, it's been an absolute delight. Would you please, in your own unique fashion, see us off? Beats by Dre, indeed. <laughs>